0: doll. Hey doll. I'm your host Cynthia. And I'm your host Paula. And we are Dolls Dolls and Doom. (laughs) Today I am going to tell you the story of the Girl Scout murder. And a little trigger warning this one is pretty intense and it does involve children so I want to give you a heads up about that. So the Girl Scout murders. For 48 seasons, camp counselors would gather at Camp Scott, a 410-acre Girl Scout compound located between Locust Grove and Tulaqua, Oklahoma. There they would spend several months training for a two-week sleepaway camp where they would host hundreds of Girl Scouts ages eight to 18 every June. Now, During the counselor training in the summer of 1977, one of the counselors returned to her tent to find that her belongings had been ransacked. Everything was in disarray, and as she was surveying the damage, she noticed that some donuts that she had left behind had actually been stolen, and in their place was a handwritten note claiming that three girls in tent one would be murdered.
1: Multiple things wrong with that, because
0: first of all, you don't take a girl's donuts, Okay. True, girl. (laughs) Don't mess with my donuts. Don't
1: mess with my snacks. And second of all, that note is just
0: creepy. So creepy, right? And, um, you know, there's a couple things I think we need to keep in mind when we picture this scenario. So, first of all, these counselors were very young. They were like 18 and 19 years old.
1: They're still children. children.
0: Right. They were technically adults, but in many ways they are still kids themselves. Secondly, this was 43 years ago. So times were very different. Oh, yes. And um, I think if this happened now, we'd be calling the police, hopefully, and taking it seriously. But back then, it was really just passed off as a prank. So that counselor actually threw this note away. Even though later authorities would try to recover it, they they never found this
1: note. Oh, that's so frustrating.
0: I know, right? I don't think I would have thrown it away.
1: No, definitely not.
0: But, you know, easy to say what I would have done. True. So over the next couple of weeks, again, while these counselors are still in training, they noticed that items just continue to go missing and things keep being moved around. But again, it was all just passed off as someone fooling around. Now, I think it needs to be said that the parents who are considering sending their children to this upcoming sleepaway camp were never told of any of these strange happenings. I can tell you as a parent, I would be pretty upset if I found out that someone had made a written threat to children at this camp and no one ever told me.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I don't even have kids and that's just wrong.
0: Yeah, it's really, uh, really scary, but for whatever reason, the camp chose not to share this information. The first official day of camp was June 12th, 1977, and even on that very day before the campers arrived, two men who did not belong on the premises and were only described as men wearing army type boots were seen walking around in the woods right behind the tents now again this should have sent up red flags but it didn't so no one ever looked for these two guys i think they looked for them but that was it they just you know oh a couple guys walking around that was the end of it um that day Later, buses unloaded hundreds of campers and they were all sent to their assigned units to get settled. So Camp Scott was divided into 10 units, the most isolated of which was the Kiowa unit. Now I looked at a map of this entire camp and I could see that this particular unit was situated back much further into the woods and in a much denser terrain. The Kiowa unit had a total of eight tents One was for the counselors, and the remaining seven housed the Girl Scouts, whose tent assignments were based on their ages. Each tent held four girls, except for the very last tent, tent number eight, which only had three girls on this first night. Now, those girls were Denise Milner, who was 10 years old, Michelle Goose, who was nine, and Lori Farmer, who was only eight years old and was actually the youngest camper in all of Camp Scott. Her birthday was actually later that week, and she would be turning nine. She was super excited for her first sleepaway camp, and her parents had actually debated between two different camps, but ultimately settled on Camp Scott for Lori to go this summer. Michelle had gone to sleepaway camp the year before, and she couldn't wait to go back. Her only stipulation was that her mom had to take care of her African violets while she was away. Oh, that's so sweet. She had a green thumb. I know. I love plants, too, so I get it. That That was cute. Now, Denise was more of an introverted child, and though she had originally expressed interest in going to camp, as the time approached for her to actually go, she started to get nervous, and she changed her mind. Now, her mom was really trying to help foster independence and help Denise try new things she told her to just try it for one night just give it one try and if she didn't like it her mom would come pick her up so reluctantly Denise agreed strange little side note later that day after Denise was dropped off Denise's five-year-old little sister started asking her mom a bunch of strange questions about death and she actually told her mom quote tomorrow everyone is going to die
1: Okay, that's just too creepy. What a coincidence.
0: So, so strange, right? All of the tents in the Kiowa unit were arranged in a crescent type shape, with the counselor's tent being the very first in this semicircle and tent number eight being the very last. And there was actually a building containing the shower and the bathroom in the middle. But unfortunately, this building actually blocked the view of tent eight from the counselor's tent. Okay, that's just not smart planning. It really, it's really very separated. If you look at a photo, it's pretty far out there. The fact that they put some of the younger girls in that tent also seems strange to me. Yeah, I feel like the younger girls should have been closer to the camp counselor. That's, that's what I would think too, but again, not what happened. Now, I was never a Girl Scout, and I never went to sleepaway camp, so I really didn't know what to picture when I heard this word, tent but I Googled it and just imagine a wooden platform with a canvas top and sides, And inside was just enough room for four cots. So on this first day, the girls arrived, get settled. They may have had time to do a few outdoor activities, but the scheduled bonfire and some of the other opening day events were actually canceled due to the fact that it started raining pretty heavily around 7 p.m. And because of this downpour, all of the girls were instructed to go back to their tents and write letters home to their families.
1: I've never been either, but I've always wanted to go. And I would love to be in a rainy... I would love to be in a tent on a rainy afternoon in the woods. I just think it's... I
0: think we should plan a camping trip. Okay, I'm in. You and me. Okay, but I'm not stealing your donuts. (laughs) Girl, you better not. At bedtime... The counselors checked on all of the girls. They made sure everyone was where they were supposed to be. And once they saw that all of the campers were safe and secure, they made their way back to the counselor tent. Now, this may change your mind about wanting to go camping. At around 2 a.m., Carla Wilhite, who was one of the counselors in the Kiowa unit, woke up to some strange noises. She said it was unlike anything she had heard before. She described it as being low and guttural, A mix between a frog and a bullhorn. She said it didn't sound like a human, but it also didn't sound like an animal. She woke her roommate up to listen, but the noise suddenly stopped. She decided to go investigate, and when she did, she saw a dim light out in the distance around where the tree line would have been. So she turned her flashlight on and pointed it in the direction of the light, and the light in the woods immediately went off. So she just stood, she watched for a bit, And after a few minutes, the light came back on and it started moving. Every time she would turn her flashlight on, the light in the woods would go out.
1: Oh, this is creeping me out already.
0: So scary. She tried investigating as much as she felt comfortable, but she did later admit that she was afraid to go too far into the woods after hearing this creepy noise and seeing the strange light. So she just decided to walk the length of all the girls' tents. She said there was no noise coming from any of the girls. So despite being a little freaked out, She returned to her tent and went back to sleep. The next morning, she would discover that during the night, her tent had been taken off of the hook screws as she and the other counselors slept, and their purses and eyeglasses had been stolen. Oh my God. The little girls who were housed in tent number six said that at some point in the night, their tent flap had been jerked open. Someone shined a light in for a few seconds and then closed the flap quickly and walked away. And then another camper reported that she heard a little girl crying in the middle of the night. Now, after her crazy night with noises and lights, Carla decided to get up just as dawn was breaking and go get a shower. As she walked to the bathroom facility, she saw something strange out of the corner of her eye. It appeared to be a discarded sleeping bag. As she walked over to get a better look, she saw that it was actually the partially nude and savagely beaten body of little Denise Milner. Police were immediately notified, and as the counselors were trying to contain the other little girls and keep them occupied so that they obviously wouldn't know what was going on, the counselors realized that the other two little girls from Ten eight 8 were missing. No. It didn't take them long to discover two more discarded sleeping bags. <gasps> Now, here's something I find a little strange, but at the same time, I may be reading too much into this. Before the police arrive, apparently, instead of opening the two remaining sleeping bags, one of the counselors just picked one of them up and felt the weight of a body inside and then knelt down beside the other sleeping bag and just felt it and could feel that there was a body inside that bag as well. And I don't know, just on the surface, it seems a little strange to me that they wouldn't actually open the bags to confirm that there were bodies inside. My first thought would be, what if the girls weren't actually dead? What if they needed help?
1: I completely agree.
0: I guess that's one of those scenarios where it seems really easy for me to nitpick someone else's behavior when in reality, if I actually happened upon that scene, who knows what I would do. Agreed. It's one of those situations where you don't know how you're going to react unless you're in that spot. Right. It's really easy for me to sit over here and dissect their behavior. Right. When the authorities did arrive on the scene, the two sleeping bags were opened, and unfortunately, fears were confirmed. Inside were the bodies of Michelle Goose and Lori Farmer, the three little girls from Tent 8, had been murdered. All of the remaining campers at Camp Scott were immediately rounded up, loaded onto buses, and taken to the Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa to be picked up by their parents. They were told there were some plumbing problems and camp would have to end early. The parents were told that there was an accident involving some campers and that they needed to pick up their girls, but they were not told if their children were involved. So these poor, panicked parents literally just had to wait and see if their daughter was going to step off the bus in Tulsa. Okay, that's horrible. At least let them know what's going on. It was, yeah, it was very poorly handled in my opinion. The parents of the three murdered girls were only told that their daughters were killed in an accident, and they did not learn that their babies were actually murdered until they saw it on the news. That is horrible. That is absolutely the worst way to do it. And then, to make matters even worse, the camp did not contact the parents of the murdered girls until after contacting both the camp attorney and the camp's insurance company okay yeah they just didn't want to be accused of something liable right definitely definitely looking out for themselves there investigators were able to determine that the killer had entered the back of the tent and struck michelle and Lori, and they had actually died inside the tent due to blunt force trauma little denise was dragged into the woods before she was killed someone, presumably the killer, had tried to clean up the blood in the tent with mattress covers and towels that they then stuffed into the sleeping bags along with the bodies. All three girls had been sexually assaulted. The investigator who opened up the sleeping bag containing Lori said that when he took her out of the bag she just looked so peaceful it looked like she was just asleep and he kept wanting her to just wake up. And as he examined her, he kept hoping and praying that she had not been sexually abused. At this point, he knew that the two other little girls had been abused sexually. And he said he would have tried to find a shred of peace by knowing that just one of these girls had not been. But he could tell by the way her underwear had been pulled up and twisted to the side that she had been. Now, this was a really experienced law enforcement agent. And he, along with all of his colleagues, was absolutely gutted that someone could do something so horrific to these girls. He said the girls had been handled with excessive force and he described it as overkill. It always seems worse when it's children. It's just so unfair. For sure. And, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, I mean, that's so young. These were just tiny, tiny little things. It's really sad.
1: Innocent little girls who, of course, don't understand what's going on or why.
0: Ugh. I, uh, makes me sick. While they were assessing the scene, the investigators started asking questions. Why were some of the counselors' glasses taken? It appeared that some pairs had been tried on and then discarded. A flashlight was found with a piece of newspaper stuffed inside to help the battery properly connect. And the duct tape and rope used to bind the girls was discovered to have been stolen from a nearby farmhouse. Now, this farmer cooperated completely with investigators and was ruled out as a suspect, but unfortunately, the press hounded him and reported as if he was the murderer, which led to him having to be hospitalized. One of the more strange things that happened at this crime scene was one of the little girl's shoes showed up later in the day in a field that had already been searched. This led investigators to consider that maybe someone at the camp possibly even a counselor could have been involved or and supposed to be right now this area surrounding Camp Scott had a very large Cherokee Indian population and there was a Cherokee man by the name of Gene Hart who had been convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women back in 1966. He bound and gagged these two women with duct tape and rope stole their eyeglasses, and wore them as he raped and sodomized them. After the rapes, he left them in the woods to die, blindfolded, bound, and gagged, with their nostrils taped shut so they could not breathe. Miraculously, they were able to free themselves from the restraints and escape and get help. But get this, they reported that while their attacker was raping them, he made strange, animal-like, guttural noises.
1: Okay, I think we just found our killer. Gene Hart was
0: convicted of the rapes, sent to prison, but actually escaped prison and was on the lam at the time of the Girl Scout murders. Now, due to the similarities in these two cases, authorities quickly suspected that Gene Hart might be responsible for these murders. The suspicion was further corroborated when investigators found a cave overlooking Camp Scott that someone had been living in inside this cave was a newspaper that was the same edition as the piece found in the flashlight at the crime scene. They also found some of the missing eyeglasses from the camp. They found more duct tape, lace panties, and two photos of unknown women. Now the newspaper, the eyeglasses, and the duct tape all linked the inhabitant of this cave to the Camp Scott crime scene, but they just had to figure out where these panties, and even more so, where these two photographs came from. Now the Cherokee believe in a type of magic and that may not be the correct word. My great grandmother is actually Cherokee, but I never met her. So there's a lot I don't know, I wish I did. They do believe in things like shape-shifting and special ceremonies that medicine men perform to help ask for things like guidance or protection. So one of the detectives went to the Cherokee people and asked for their help. A medicine man performed a special ceremony, and immediately after the ceremony was completed, the investigator's phone rang, and the person on the other end was able to link those two photographs from the cave to Gene Hart. Apparently, Gene had worked with a photographer to have them developed while he was in prison. Now, despite being a terrible human being, if we can even call him human after he raped two pregnant women, Seriously. Gene Hart was actually considered to be a bit of a hometown hero, In his youth, he had been a local football star, and there was talk of him being drafted to the Dallas Cowboys, so because of this, some of the other locals, especially fellow Cherokee, were willing to support him in any way they could, including helping to keep him hidden, as remember, he's an escaped convict. There was a lot of local talk that Gene Hart himself was a shapeshifter, and that his ability to change forms explained how he was able to escape from prison. Tracking dogs were brought in and they would follow a trail from Camp Scott into a field and then suddenly the trail would stop and the dogs would just look up in the air suggesting that the person they were tracking just disappeared or possibly changed forms and maybe flew away. Okay. It it's interesting. It's an interesting theory. According to one of the officers who worked on this case, a local Cherokee medicine man actually put a curse on the scent-tracking dogs that were brought in to find Gene. According to the curse, the dogs were going to die. Paula, guess what happened? I hate to say it, but the dogs died. Well, one of the two main tracking dogs died suddenly. Handlers believed it was due to heat exhaustion, possibly overexertion, but officially the cause of the dog's death was unknown. The remaining dog's name was Paris, and despite being a well-trained professional tracking dog, one day Paris suddenly ran into traffic and was hit and killed by a car. Another medicine man named Crying Wolf explained to an investigator that he could take a specific request and perform a secret ceremony using running water, tobacco, and the requester's breath, and that the tobacco after this ceremony could be used to accomplish whatever the person needed help with. So, this investigator asked this medicine man to use this special medicine to make sure that everything he did to help solve this case was accurate and to help him track the murderer. Later in the investigation, the man would be camped out in the woods in an effort to find Gene, and he said, out of nowhere, a cat pounced onto him and then ran away, leaving him shaken for the remainder of the night. So, We can see that in addition to everything that would have to be taken into consideration in any murder case, with this case, they had a lot of other less common factors to consider. And though it might seem a bit out there to non-believers, some of the people who were working on this case actually put some weight into these strange happenings. I actually like
1: the fact that they were willing to basically try anything to figure it out and get him.
0: I do too. They were open-minded. They didn't think they had all the answers. They asked for help with resources that you know they had available to them i i like it there have been several cases that have been solved by like psychics and such
1: absolutely i think you know try anything especially when people are willing to help you i agree
0: completely eventually a local informant contacts the police and tells them that they need to talk to a certain medicine man's wife She's contacted, and the police pretty much tell her that they're going to let the three little girls' fathers know that she knows where the killer is and that she's hiding him. Now, they later say that they were just bluffing, that they wouldn't have done that, but it worked. She immediately takes the detectives to a cabin in the woods where Jean is hiding. Now, when Jean sees the detectives, he tries to run, but with guns pointed at him, one of the officers asked Jean if he wanted to die that day, and Jean stopped. As he was arresting Jean, that investigator who had used the special medicine tapped his feet and quote took his medicine back. He then said to Jean, "You killed those girls," and Jean replied, "You'll never pin it on me." At the time of his arrest, Jean was wearing women's eyeglasses. When the cabin was searched, a small blue mirror and a corn cob pipe were found. They belonged to a camp counselor and placed Jean at the camp near the time of the murders. During Jean's trial, prosecutors showed that Jean's hair matched the hair found on the tape used to bind Denise's hands. And even though Jean had previously had a vasectomy and therefore should not produce sperm, it was discovered that his vasectomy was unsuccessful and therefore he did still produce. There was sperm found on all three girls. But at the time this occurred, they were unable to match the DNA to Gene or to anyone else. Now remember, Gene still had a lot of supporters. All over town, you could see signs and t-shirts saying things like, Gene Hart for Attorney General, or Stop the Mays County Railroad. There were benefit chicken dinners to raise money for his defense fund. Lori's mother said that she would go to a local restaurant and see a jar collecting money for Gene's defense i'm sorry but that poor woman i can't even imagine what that felt like i think i'd turn around and walk out like oh yeah me too i couldn't handle it no that's awful michelle's mother said that when she walked into the courtroom it felt like she was being treated like the guilty party while Jean was treated like a hero at one point there were even four medicine men in the courtroom at once allegedly trying to influence the outcome of the trial Now, the prosecutors pointed to all the ways Gene could be linked to this crime, such as hair match and sperm match. The women's photos, the tape, and the newspaper found in the cave all linked to him. The mirror and the corncob pipe linked him to the camp. Due to rules of evidence, prosecutors were not allowed to bring in the prior rape similarities, as that was considered too prejudicial. Even though all it is is pure fact, right? The defense said that Gene's hair was only similar to the hair found at the crime scene, and they even implicated another man for the murders. Now, just an FYI, this other man had been ruled out with testing. The defense said there was a thumbprint on the flashlight lens that did not belong to Gene, and inside tent number eight was a size nine and a half shoe print, and Gene Hart was a size 11 and a half. The defense brought in an ex jailer. Who the sheriff had fired in 1973 and this man testified that he had seen those two photos that were found in the cave in the sheriff's desk implying that some of this evidence linking Gene to the crime might have been planted. The sheriff took the stand and denied this and even showed the property receipt signed by Hart proving that the photos were in fact his property. During the trial Gene did not take the stand. When the verdict was rendered the courthouse was packed, and the scene was described as mayhem when Jean Hart was found. What do you think? I'm afraid it's going to be not guilty." Not guilty." The girls' families were shocked and said it was only second to the shock of hearing their daughters were dead. On the way home from the trial, Lori's mother stopped to pick up Lori's belongings, which up until this point, had been held as evidence. She picked up Lori's shirt her shoes, and her sleeping bag that had been a gift from Lori's grandparents. Gene Hart was returned to prison to complete his rape sentence. And a couple of weeks later, on the 13-year anniversary of the rape, Gene was lifting weights and running when he suddenly collapsed and died just before 7 p.m. Was it a heart attack or something else? Unknown. Just collapsed and died 13 years to the day. Of the rape. It seems like justice to me.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: It's been over 40 years since Lori Farmer, Michelle Goose, and Denise Milner were murdered, and many people are still searching for answers. With the advances we've made in the decades since, more testing has been done on this case. A DNA test was done in 2008 that came back inconclusive. Another DNA test was performed as recently as 2018, but the results of that test are unknown. I am so curious to know what the results of that test were.
1: Okay, so why are they unknown? Was there not enough to
0: test? No idea. All you can find on it is that a test was done unknown. So I'm really hoping we can get those results one day and hopefully finally give these families some peace and final for sure answers. Camp Scott was never open for even one more night and has remained abandoned for the last 43 years.
1: I can only imagine the restless spirits at that camp.
0: Scary, right?
1: Yeah, and so
0: heartbreaking. Just awful. Anything with kids is like extra, extra awful, but just knowing the, in so many ways this maybe could have possibly been prevented just with better security and... Looking back, I think, would this have happened today? I don't know, I hope.
1: I, I really feel that no, it would not have
0: happened today. Me too. That's the that's the story of the Girl Scout murders. Pretty rough. Yes, very, very heartbreaking. I did always want to be a Girl Scout. I never was.
1: You know, okay, so I have a funny story. When I was younger, I was a brownie for one year, which is basically the prequel to being a Girl Scout. And my mom is the creative type, so she was the, the co-captain. And then the captain, she for some reason did not like me. Um, I think it's because she was kind of jealous of my mom because she was the creative one. So when we all got together, all my friends were excited to see me and my mom come in. So one day we were going to some location to do brownie stuff. And I was helping bring boxes or whatever in her car. And she said, you need to tell your mom that you do not wanna become a Girl Scout next year. I told my mom that I don't wanna be a Girl Scout next year, which was a lie. I never told her why until I was in my early 20s. I never got to be a Girl Scout.
0: How old were you? I was like 9 or 10. That's so sad. (laughs) Yeah, well, shit happens, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Some mean old lady. Yeah, jealous of my creative mother. That's right. And your mother is pretty creative. She certainly is. (laughs) You've told me some of the (laughs) cutest stories about your mother. I think she would be my kind of person for sure. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Paula. And I'm Cynthia.
1: And we are Dolls Dolls and Doom.
0: Doom. Don't forget to check us out next time as we tell you a new spooky story. All right. Bye. Bye.